Noor Jahan was far too astute a politician not to realize how dramatically Shah Jahan's rebellion had changed the political landscape. Shah Jahan himself was licking his wounds in virtual exile. Khusro was dead, and Shahriyar, now that the Kandahar campaign had been aborted, was again what he always had been, an absolute nobody. The only prince left with any real power was Pervez, the victorious leader of the imperial campaign against Shah Jahan's rebellion. True, he was a self-indulgent weakling and a notorious drunkard, but he was Jahangir's eldest surviving son, perfectly loyal and obedient to his father, and, therefore, a likely successor to the throne. And he and Mahabad Khan, by far the best general in the army and the real mastermind of the campaign against Shah Jahan, got along quite well. Mahabad Khan, on the other hand, made no secret of his disapproval of a woman running the empire. He hated Asif Khan, whom he suspected, not without reason, to be jealous of him and bent on ruining him. Dirk Collier, The Mughals and Their India Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 9 of the Islamic History Podcast. This season, we are continuing our discussion on the Mughal Empire. This is Episode 9-4, Jahangir's Troubles. Nur Jahan, the wife and chief consort of Mughal Emperor Jahangir, was the second most powerful person in the empire after her husband. However, the emperor was in poor health, and addicted to opium. Once he was dead, Nur Jahan's power would be gone. To avoid this, she arranged a marriage between her daughter and Prince Shahriyar, Jahangir's son from another wife. Now, all she had to do was arrange things so that her son-in-law inherited the throne. But there was one main obstacle in her way, Shahriyar's older brother, Prince Khurram. Prince Khurram had made a name for himself with a string of successful victories having defeated the Rajputs of Mawar, humbled Malikambar, and subdued the Deccan. This made Prince Khurram the obvious pick to succeed Jahangir. And Nur Jahan would do everything in her power to prevent that. The Deccan Revisited, Part 2 In our previous episode, we briefly mentioned Malik Ambar's guerrilla warfare in 1620 and how he nearly pushed the Mughals out of the Deccan. Today, we pick up where we left off, exploring the impact of these events on the royal court and the tumultuous journey of Prince Khurram. In 1620, the Deccan was ablaze as Malik Ambar's guerrilla war was gaining momentum. Malik Ambar's relentless tactics posed a formidable challenge to the Mughal Empire. With a decadent turmoil, Kani Khan and Abdurrahim urged Jahangir's son, Prince Khurram, to return to the Deccan. Prince Khurram, who was on campaign in the north near Kashmir, obliged but was anxious to quickly wrap things up in the Deccan. He had already dealt with Malik Ambar three years earlier and was more concerned about the political maneuverings taking place back in Agra. 
He was particularly worried about his brother Khusro, whose sight had been partially restored by Mughal doctors and who still had loyal supporters within the empire. Prince Khurram and Nur Jahan joined forces to neutralize Prince Khusro, conspiring to place the half-blind prince under Khurram's custody. It's important to note that at this time, there was not yet any animosity between the prince and the queen, though obviously this would soon change. This partnership led to Khusro traveling with Khurram to the Deccan, where the Mughals again faced off against Malik Ambar. Prince Khurram launched successful campaigns against Malik Ambar, ultimately forcing the African vizier to the negotiation table and reclaiming some Deccan territory. Despite this nominal victory, the Mughal hold on the Deccan remained precarious, as the Deccan Sultanates maintained a high degree of independence. Meanwhile, in 1621, Jahangir's health continued to deteriorate. This, combined with Khusro's suspicious death in the Deccan, led to more political machinations in the royal court. Prince Khurram soon discovered that his younger brother, Prince Shahriyar had been granted substantial land holdings, including Hisar Faroz. Hisar Faroz, the traditional jagir of the heir apparent, had once belonged to Prince Khurram. Persia and Kandahar The Safavid emperor, Shah Abbas, wanted to reclaim Kandahar, believing it rightfully belonged to Persia. There was some truth to this claim, dating back to Akbar's time, which we discussed in the first episode of this series. Shah Abbas had made previous half-hearted attempts to take Kandahar, but in 1620, he dropped all pretenses, besieged, and eventually captured Kandahar. This led to a strange series of polite exchanges between the two emperors, where they tried to outdo each other in flowery talk and flattery. Here's a quote from Shah Abbas's letter to Jahangir explaining his reasons for taking the city. May the breezes of prayers, whiffs of response to which cause the rosebud of desire to open and perfume the nostrils of unity, and flashes of elegy that drive away the darkness of disagreeableness be perceived by that illuminated mind. It will have been reflected upon the knowledgeable heart and celestial mind of that brother as dear to me as life itself that during the events occurring in Iran after the inevitable death of His Highness, the late Shah, certain territories departed from the control of those attached to the saintly family. Now, here's a quote from Jahangir's reply, which is equally polite, but still rebukes Shah Abbas and calls him a liar. That Shah of Jamshidian might, whose army is like the stars, whose court is like the celestial sphere, who is worthy of the crown of the Khosros, scion of the Alavid house, offspring of the Safavid family, has, without provocation or cause, caused to wither the garden of amity, friendship, brotherliness, and unity, which should not have been clouded by the dust of contention until the end of time. Apparently, the custom of unity and loyalty between rulers of the world used to be so firmly founded upon fraternal amity that they swore on each other's heads and with such perfect spiritual intimacy and corporeal comradeship that a spirit could not come between them, much less territory or property, they went touring and hunting. 
alas, for unbounded love. Well, after this exchange, Jahangir sent a messenger to the Deccan commanding Prince Kurram to retake Kandahar from the Persians. The Revolt of Prince Kurram Prince Kodam initially complied with Jahangir's orders to retake Kandahar, but grew suspicious of his father's intentions. Afghanistan was even further away from the royal court than the Deccan, and he did not trust the emperor's wife, Nur Jahan, who might be trying to keep him away from the court. Fearing that he was being tricked and marginalized, Prince Kodam and his forces halted at Mandu in central Madhya Pradesh, about 450 miles south of Delhi. Then he began making demands and excuses to delay the campaign to Kandahar. Nur Jahan capitalized on Prince Kodam's defiance and used it to turn Jahangir against him. As tensions escalated, Prince Kodam seized land holdings from Nur Jahan and Prince Shahriar in Rajasthan. Jahangir sent a furious message ordering Kodam to stop this behavior and demanded an apology if he ever expected to set foot in Agra again. With Prince Kodam refusing to budge, Emperor Jahangir was forced to send his best imperial troops to continue the campaign in Kandahar. There was nothing Prince Kodam could do as Jahangir appointed Shahriyar as the commander of this campaign. Now Prince Kodam was starting to fear for his life. He was afraid he might face a similar fate to his brother Khusro many years earlier. Prince Kodam came to the conclusion that rebellion was his only option. In 1623, Prince Kodam announced his rebellion. It immediately gained momentum as high-ranking Mughal nobles, including Khani Khan and Abdurrahim, joined his cause. Meanwhile, Nur Jahan and Emperor Jahangir marshaled forces from all across the empire to confront the rebellious prince. Among these was Mahabad Khan and Prince Pervez. Nur Jahan sent Mahabad Khan, the empire's greatest general and a close friend of the emperor, to face Prince Kodam. Meanwhile, Jahangir ordered his oldest living son, Prince Pervez, to lead an army out of Bihar to deal with the rebels. Prince Kodam led his forces north toward Delhi and Agra, the heart of Mughal authority. But he was intercepted and defeated by General Mahabad Khan at Bilochpura, just north of Delhi. Prince Kodam retreated south towards Agra in April 1623, where he hoped to seize the treasury. But he could not defeat Agra's citadel, so he continued his retreat south. This led to another confrontation with Mahabad Khan's army at Mathura, where one of the rebel prince's key allies, Sundar Das, was killed in battle. After that, many of Prince Kodam's forces realized this was a lost cause and began to desert him. Prince Kodam fled to Mawar, where he was hosted by Rana Kairan Singh. Ironically, Prince Kodam had defeated Rana Kairan's father in 1624. This was something we discussed in the previous episode. But with Mahabad Khan and Mirza Pervez pursuing him, Prince Kodam had to stay on the move, eventually fleeing to the Deccan. In the Deccan, Prince Kodam tried to forge an alliance with Malik Ambar, who was embroiled in a conflict with the Bijapur Sultanate. However, this alliance dissolved when Mahabad Khan and Mirza Perez arrived with the Mughal army. At over 70 years old by now, Malik Ambar was in no mood to deal with the Mughals. 
As Prince Kodum's forces dwindled and key allies defected, he fled south to Golconda. The Sultan of Golconda was reluctant to get involved, but he felt sympathy for the exhausted rebel prince. The Sultan allowed Prince Kodum to take refuge in Golconda, where he was able to regain his strength and resume his campaign. Now that Prince Kodum was on the outskirts of Mughal territory, the Imperial Army relaxed its pursuit of him. Prince Kodum's fortunes fluctuated as he captured Odisha, parts of Bengal, and Bihar. But as soon as he was back in Mughal territory, General Mahabad Khan and Prince Pervez resumed their pursuit, eventually forcing Prince Kodum to flee all the way back to the Deccan. In a desperate bid for reconciliation, Prince Kodum wrote to his father in 1626 seeking forgiveness. Nur Jahan, now more concerned about Prince Pervez and Mahabad Khan's growing influence, persuaded Jahangir to pardon the rebel prince. Jahangir agreed to forgive Prince Kodum under certain conditions, including sending his sons as hostages and relinquishing control of various forts. Prince Kodum accepted these demands, sending his two sons, Darashiko and Aurangzeb, ages 10 and 8 respectively, to live under Nur Jahan's care. Not wanting to be too close to his father's domain, Prince Kodum moved with his wife and two-year-old son back to the Deccan. Mahabad Khan's coup Amid these intrigues, Nur Jahan now moved to neutralize Mahabad Khan and Mirza Pervez, reassigning them to distant provinces. To further weaken the general, she also manufactured a claim of corruption and embezzlement against him. In 1626, Mahabad Khan traveled to Punjab, where the emperor held his court near the Jhelum River. The general's wounded pride compelled him to seek an audience with the emperor, hoping to lay bare his grievances and plead for forgiveness. With an entourage of 5,000 Rajput warriors at his side, Mahabad Khan arrived, only to be instructed to remain on the eastern side of the river until the emperor deemed it fit to meet him, an unmistakable sign that he had fallen out of favor with Jahangir. Yet, Mahabad Khan defied these orders, boldly crossing over to the western side of the river. He left 2,000 Rajput warriors behind to guard the bridge going over the river. Meanwhile, much of the Mughal forces had already crossed over to the eastern side in anticipation of a battle with Mahabad Khan's forces. Jahangir came out to meet with Mahabad Khan, albeit reluctantly. Mahabad Khan pleaded his case, blaming the rift in their friendship on Nur Jahan. He asked the emperor to ride with him so he could give his side of the story, and Jahangir reluctantly agreed. By this time, Nur Jahan and her brother Asif Khan had also crossed over to the eastern side of the river. They soon realized their mistake and rushed to get back across to Jahangir and Mahabad Khan. But it was too late. The Rajputs had already destroyed the bridge and now the imperial forces were stuck on the wrong side of the river. The Mughal imperial troops rushed to build a temporary bridge, but... Bridges are not things that should be rushed. Many of them were killed trying to cross the river, while others were killed fighting the Rajputs who tried to stop them from crossing the river. With the army in disarray, Nur Jahan, Asaf Khan, and Shahriyar fled for their lives. 
This was how General Mahabad Khan unwittingly and unintentionally staged a coup in 1626. For the next eight months, he effectively controlled the empire with Jahangir essentially under house arrest. Eventually, Nur Jahan, her brother, and her son-in-law were captured. Mahabad Khan allowed them to return to the palace unharmed, and they outwardly submitted to his authority. But these were master politicians, and Mahabad Khan was just a simple general. The entire palace was loyal to Nur Jahan and Jahangir, and Mahabad Khan couldn't trust anyone. He eventually got tired of the political intrigue and constantly fearing for his life. One day, while Jahangir was reviewing his troops, Mahabad Khan got on his horse and started riding away. And he never looked back. Mahabad Khan made his way to the Deccan where he formed an alliance with the most unlikely of people, Prince Kodam, the same man he had pursued across half of India. But their partnership was mutually beneficial as Prince Kodam needed a capable general and Mahabad Khan needed a prince to align with. Before we end today, listen to this quote about this strange series of events. Throughout this strange episode, it is noteworthy that Mahabad Khan made no attempt to harm the emperor or to replace him on the throne by another Tamurid male or even by himself. Instead, when he first seized Jahangir, Mahabad Khan claimed that he was acting only out of desperation since he feared death or imprisonment from the plots against him. In his desperation, he had boldly and presumptuously thrown himself upon His Majesty's protection. The Timurid ruler remained a potent symbol of authority to all concerned. John F. Richards, The Mughal Empire In the next episode, we'll discuss the death of Jahangir and the first serious incident of fratricide as Prince Khurram and Prince Shahriyar fight for the throne. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you're an Apple or Spotify user, open the app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you're listening on Podbean, become a patron in the Podbean app and you'll get access to all of our premium content. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash Islamic History. Our premium content includes a series on the life of Salahuddin, an ongoing series about the Umayyad dynasty, and one I think you'll really enjoy, our latest series on the Soviet-Afghan war. Altogether, that's well over 50 premium episodes. Before we go, I want to thank Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research on the Mughal Empire and his continued support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Stay tuned for a short clip from our series on the Soviet-Afghan War. And until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.
In July 1982, the late Dr. Wali Kayat set an ambush near the Mamur Hotel. A Soviet column moving supplies from Kabul to Gordes entered the ambush kill zone. During the attack, one Mujahideen fired an RPG-7 at an escorting APC. It hit the APC and a Soviet officer jumped out of the damaged APC and took cover. The officer was wounded. While the fighting was going on, the column sped up and left the ambush area and left the officer behind. Dr. Abdul Wali Khayat fired at the position where the Soviet officer was. The Soviet officer returned fire with his AK-74. Dr. Khayat fired again and wounded the Soviet officer a second time, this time in the hand. The Soviet officer dropped his AK-74 and took out his pistol. Dr. Khayat threw a hand grenade at the officer and killed him. Then he crossed the road and took his AK-74 and his Makarov pistol. He left the body where it lay and the Mujahideen left the ambush site. The next day, the Soviets returned in a column from Kabul. They cordoned off the area and searched the houses around Mohammed Aga district headquarters and the town of Kotubkel. They went house to house looking for their missing officer. HIH commander Sami Jan was in Kotubkel at that time. He coordinated and organized the actions of all the Mujahideen factions that were caught in the cordon. There were about 150 Mujahideen caught in the cordon. The Mujahideen began attacking the searching Soviets. They launched sudden, surprise attacks in the close streets and alleys of the villages and in the spaces between the villages. The fighting was often at point-blank range. The fighting began in the morning and continued until the late afternoon. Soviet casualties are unknown, but we think that they were heavy. The Mujahideen captured four AK-74s. Mujahideen casualties were seven KIA, including Semijan. Most of the dead Mujahideen had run out of ammunition. The Soviets captured the weapons of the dead Mujahideen, including some AK-47s, a Garuyanov machine gun, an RPG-7, and a few AK-74s captured from the Soviets in the past. As the Soviets got involved in fighting, they stopped searching. As daylight waned, the Soviets disengaged, took their dead, and withdrew back to Kabul. They did find and evacuate the body of the officer who Dr. Khayyad killed the day before. It was still lying where he was killed. Commander Mohammed Akbar, Hizbi Islami Golbuddin. In December 1980, in Kunar province, a 50-man guerrilla force slipped across the border from Pakistan and crossed over the Kunar River at night. Then, it stopped to rest in a canyon. We decided to destroy the Mujahideen within the confines of the canyon, which was located to the southwest of Chaghasarai. The commander planned to conduct the battle as follows. Insert an airborne company, minus one platoon, by 0400 hours. 15th December to block the southern lip of the canyon and simultaneously insert an airborne platoon and the regimental airborne reconnaissance platoon to block enemy exits to the north and west. At 0500 hours, move the rest of the battalion minus the blocking company 
into the canyon to search for and destroy the enemy, which was resting in the village located in the canyon. At 2200 hours, 14th of December, the blocking group moved out on gas 66 trucks. The trucks' headlights were off. They drove from the battalion lager, which was located along the highway, north toward Chakhasarai. In order to deceive Muhahideen reconnaissance, several Gaz-66 trucks also drove south from the lager. The trucks dropped the first group two kilometers south of the canyon and then continued north. The first group walked to their blocking positions. The second part of the blocking force was dropped north of the canyon and walked to their positions. By 0415 December, the exits from the canyon were sealed. At 0500 hours, the battalion, minus the blocking company, began its sweep into the canyon. The Muhahideen security discovered this force at 0600. Adhering to their tactics, part of the enemy initiated combat with our main force, while the rest began a withdrawal. The withdrawing forces were caught in our ambushes. The enemy lost 24 killed and 4 captured. We had 1 wounded. Major V. A. Lukalov, 40th Army, Airborne Division.